Well, thank you for joining with us this morning as we continue on in our series in the book of Joshua. And as we've said repeatedly, this is a wonderful portion of God's word, which helps us to see and to savour the God who makes and keeps his promises. And Joshua is a book which helps us to see the unbreakable promises of God. And it's been an encouraging and challenging and uplifting and at times convicting journey through the first six chapters of this book. I certainly hope that you have felt that as we've journeyed through. We've seen the nation of Israel step into the land that God had promised to his people after centuries of years in uh, Egyptian captivity, then decades of wandering in the wilderness. And so these centuries had passed since God had promised this land to their ancestors. And now this current generation with Joshua is setting foot in the land that God had promised to them all those years before. And so we've witnessed God doing remarkable things. We've seen him do incredible acts of power, like like, uh, stopping the flow of the River Jordan, piling it up in a heap. And we've seen him then crush the walls of Jericho in chapter 6, as the people simply march round, simply yet obediently and profoundly march round, and God reduces the walls of Jericho to rubble. Uh, And so we've seen him do these remarkable things, And we've also seen God do unexpected things from our perspective. Unexpected things like promising shelter and grace to Rahab, this supposed outsider um, from God's people, but this person who had heard about and trusted in Yahweh. And so he promises grace and shelter to her and her family. And we've seen God seemingly pause the momentum of his people in chapter 5 as they had crossed over the river Jordan, seen this wonderful display of God's power and then we expect them to go in and take the land and for it all to rush before them but he pauses his people so that they could be prepared and prepared in relationship with him to go into what he had for them next and so we've seen remarkable things we've seen unexpected things and and all in all like I said it's been an encouraging challenging uplifting convicting journey so far through these six chapters and I trust you have felt so as God has been speaking to us through his word. And today we reach chapter 7 and chapter 7 of Joshua is another occasion where it seems like things don't go the way we might expect them to. Remember we left chapter 6 the very final verse of chapter 6 of Joshua is so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Again it seems like The next verse should follow with, so they spread and things lay out before them just as God said they would. But that's not what we encounter when we see the first verse of chapter 7. And so if you could turn to Joshua chapter 7 with me in your copy of God's Word, that would be wonderful to follow along with where we're going. And this morning what we're going to do is just walk our way through this chapter in blocks and in sections and see what God has to teach us as we make our way through his word here. And you can see right from the first word of Joshua chapter 7, after that rising conclusion to chapter 6, the first word we see is but. But. There's a twist in the plot. Uh, As readers, we might expect that the people now move through the land and continue to conquer all that God has laid before them. Surely things would be plain sailing from here because they just witnessed that miraculous display of God's power at Jericho. But. And so let's read the first verse of chapter 7 to see what had gone wrong here. What is this twist in this story that we might not have expected as readers? Let's read Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. 
But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Well, this is... Uh, this is this isn't just a plot twist. This seems like almost some kind of reversal of the way things we would expect we would expect things to go. How could the Lord's anger now be burning against Israel? Aren't these his people who he promised his presence with, his grace upon? What is going on? Well, firstly, we need to remember back in Joshua chapter six. As Joshua had give, given the people that rousing cry to shout as they uh, had finished and were on their seventh trip around the walls of Jericho. Shout, the Lord has given you this city. And then we noticed last week as we looked at chapter 6, there, there's an extended explanation here from Joshua in chapter 6 verses 18 and 19. And, and in the flow of chapter 6, it feels odd, it feels out of place. But now we see the significance of it. Let me go back and read chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. Joshua, talking to the people, said, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And so it couldn't have been clearer at the time. God makes it abundantly clear. The items that were found in Jericho were not to be taken as personal property. Indeed, they were to be burned up. And anything that couldn't be burned up was to be given into the Lord's treasury. It wasn't personal loot to be plundered. It was to be devoted to destruction. And then we see chapter 7, verse 1. Achan has done exactly what the Lord had told him not to do. He had taken some of these devoted things and therefore just as the Lord said would happen, he is now going to bring judgment upon himself and make the camp of Israel liable to destruction. And so, so we're given this summary of chapter 7 in the very first verse. At the end of chapter 6 things had been going one way but something dramatic is going to happen and now as chapter 7 goes on, we're going to see the explanation as to how this has come to be, what Achan has done and how it became known to the people of Israel in devastating ways. And so in verses two to five, we're going to see a defeat of the Israelite army at a city, at a town called Ai. Let's read verses two to five of Joshua chapter seven. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries, and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and they became like water. And so here we have a situation where what seemed to be a certain victory for the Israelites turns into complete disaster. They assumed that they could take the city of Ai with very little effort. And of course, that's understandable. Remember, they'd just experienced the defeat of the city of Jericho. 
And they were buoyed by the promises of God that God had said, I will be with you and I will give you the land. And so they step forward in faith. But there are a couple of problems here. A couple of problems with their with how they go about AI and what they're relying on. And firstly, the first issue is there's no mention that Joshua or the people seek God's guidance for going to AI. Now, equally, we're not told they don't do that. In chapter 9, we will be told specifically they did not inquire of the Lord, and so they they bring problems upon themselves. We're not told that here, but we're also not explicitly told that God had told them to go to AI and had given it into their hands, like he had with Jericho. The second issue that we see here is that the success at Jericho had nothing to do with the size or scale of the enemy or indeed the size or scale of the Israelite army. Yet now when it comes to AI, that seems to be what they're basing their assumptions on. There's not many people live there, only sent here 3,000 men. But the third and most important issue that's going on here that helps us understand the defeat here at AI is that the Israelite people are completely unaware of Achan's sin. And therefore, they are completely unaware of the punishment that was coming their way. So all the people know at this stage, after the defeated AI, all they know is that 36 of their men are dead. And it seems like the whole plan of conquering the land is completely up in smoke. And so the result in verse 5 is the striking language of verse 5. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. And this should be striking language for us because we've heard this phraseology before. We've seen it in chapter 2. We saw it at the very start of chapter 5. And we, so the idea of people's hearts melting in fear is not new to us. However, in chapter 2 and in chapter 5, it's God's enemies who melt in fear. Now in chapter 7, it's God's people who melt in fear. And perhaps this is a foretaste of how God's people would lose their distinctiveness to the nations around them. They would become like the people they were supposed to be driving out. But we'll maybe encounter that in future chapters. And so they've encountered this defeated AI. They've had it now. 36 of their men are dead and their hearts are melting in fear. How are they going to respond? And so let's move on by reading verses 6 to 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say, now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will, be, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And so Joshua and the elders turn to prayer. They, they come before God. They throw themselves before the ark of the Lord. They, they come into God's presence to plead with him. And, and so in some ways, uh, Joshua and the elders should be commended here. And commended for two main things. Firstly, they bring their questions and complaints to God. They don't grumble to each other about God. They come to God with their complaints and questions. That's a good thing. Secondly, they're concerned for God's fame, God's renown. What will happen? What will you do for your own great name, they say. And they know that the fame of God in the nations around them will be affected and will be impacted by their role as God's people. 
And so what will God do for his own great name now? And so there's a prayer here and that should be commended, yes, but the key issue with their prayer is that they don't know the whole picture yet. In fact, in verses six to nine, I'm going to suggest we see a misinformed prayer. A misinformed prayer that they're only seeing one side of the encounter and that's the defeat. And that's causing them to question this whole scenario. Why has God brought them across the river? Oh, if they had only been content to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. But but even though these questions are understandable, even though their desire to come before God is the right one, it's clear that they've got the wrong perspective here. The, The issue of the failure at Ai was not a failure of God. It was not a failure of God's promises. It was a failure of the people. They just didn't see it yet. They just didn't know it yet. And so they might have caused these questions. Why have you brought us here? Only to destroy us at the hand of the Amorites. But the problem is not God. The problem is not a weakness in God's promises. The problem was his people. And so in verses 10 to 12, Yahweh explains. Yahweh speaks in verses 10 and following. And so he makes it abundantly and painfully clear. Let's read these verses. We'll start with verses 10 to 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up, or the ESV has get up. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so Yahweh explains here, the issue is sin within the Israelite camp. They have, in his words, violated my covenant. This covenant, remember, is that covenant of relationship that they had renewed in chapter 5 through the sign of circumcision. They had reclaimed their identity as God's people, that he was their God, they were his people. He was their holy God, they should be his holy people. But no, God goes on to say that their actions have not been holy that they have violated his covenant, they have stolen, they have taken, they have lied, they have put things in their own possession. That's why they can't stand against their enemies. And just notice the the strength of that repetition there that, that Yahweh is making from verse 11 and 12, that he is not the source of the problem here. It is Israel who has sinned. They have violated my covenant. They have taken, they have stolen, they have lied. They have put them with their possessions. They have made them liable to destruction. You see, God made his covenant. He had remained completely and unendingly faithful to that covenant. The problem was the people. They had moved from it, or as we saw in verse 1, the Israelites were unfaithful. And so the result of this is, is the killer blow that we see in verse 12, where Yahweh says to his people, I will not be with you anymore. I will not be with you anymore. And as we've realised many times throughout this book before, book up until this point, It is the presence of God that was central to everything that his people had done. They they had known his presence through the ark of the Lord, that, that physical representation of Yahweh among his people. And wherever the ark went, wherever Yahweh went with his people, he did remarkable things. 
They knew that he had carried them this far. He had promised his presence with Joshua. As the Ark of the Covenant went into the Jordan River, the waters heaped up and the people could walk through on dry land. The Ark of the Covenant was marched around Jericho and its walls came tumbling down. God's presence was central to everything that he was accomplishing through his people. And so how could he leave them now? What would happen to them now if he left them? Well, just like the people knew, God also knew, of course, that if he left them, they would be ruined. And and so he graciously keeps his covenant and promises hope in verse 12. Verse 12 doesn't end with the threat of abandonment, but with the invitation to be restored and renewed. Verse 12 reads, I will not be with you anymore unless... Unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. In essence, this shows Yahweh saying your sins should lead to this conclusion. But I will provide another path, a better path, a path to life and to presence and relationship. And it requires that you radically remove sin from your midst. And so so Yahweh has explained here, after the defeat in Ai in verses 2 to 5, their misinformed prayer in verses 6 to 9, Yahweh explains in verses 10 to 12, and now he's going to go on to instruct. He's going to give his instructions as to how this sin is to be removed from his people in verses 13 to 15. And so now we see how the people are going to root out the sin that has caused this defeat in the first place. Verses 13 to 16, go, consecrate the people. This is Yahweh still speaking to Joshua. Tell them, consecrate yourself, sorry, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so God is going to show where the sin is lurking within his people. He's going to whittle the community down through a series of choices that he makes, the Lord chooses. And through all of his choices, he will show the guilty party who's responsible for the defeated AI, responsible for the 36 deaths of those army uh, officers, uh, those army men. And isn't it interesting in these verses, as Yahweh explains how this choice will be made, it's almost a reversal of how Achan is described in his genealogy in verse 1, isn't it? That now the Lord will choose from tribe to clan to family to man. Uh, but perhaps this whole, this whole issue raises a question for us. As we think of Achan, the guilty one, and now the whole community being involved, perhaps we look at it and ask, well, why does the sin of this one individual involve the whole community? And I don't just mean that in terms of the whole community being accused of breaking the covenant, and we've seen that, haven't we? In verse 1, but the Israelites were unfaithful, or the Lord had said, Israel has sinned in verse 10. So we're not just talking about the breaking of the covenant here being a communal thing, but also why does the discovery of the guilty party need to be so public? Why does it have to involve everybody? 
And we find the answer in recognising the reality that God's covenant was with his people. And it was with his people individually and collectively. And therefore the, the, the sin of Israel, or sorry, the sin of Achan is seen as a community issue. It's as if Achan is representing the, the people in his sin. But not only that, there's also the, the realisation that God in his sovereign way knows the impact that an individual sin can have as it starts to spread like gangrene through his community. That sin, if it's left unchecked, will spread, it will fester. It could drag the people, the rest of the people, away from their covenant fidelity. And it reminds me of that language that Jesus uses in Matthew 16, doesn't it, when he's talking to his disciples about and warns them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the false teaching that could filter through. And so in making the uncovering of this, of Achan's sin public, it also serves as a gracious reminder and a warning that God is in control. He is all-knowing, he is holy, and he commands holiness from his people. And so as the people are gathered and Achan is identified as the one who has sinned, then surely everyone there will have a fresh realisation and appreciation of the holiness of God and what it means to be his holy people. And so for these reasons and more, dealing with Achan's private sin becomes a public affair. But also, this shouldn't be a this shouldn't be a surprise for the people. God had said exactly this through Joshua. Remember back in Joshua six verse eighteen, that He had said, "Keep away from the devoted things, so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it." So we can see the link between the supposedly private sin of taking the devoted things, bringing about your own destruction, which actually will make the whole camp of Israel liable to destruction. God had said this. Joshua had cried this out before the, the army marched around Jericho. And so Achan would have known this. He would have known and heard this warning, this gracious warning from God saying, don't take it, because if you do, you will be destroyed. And Achan takes it anyway. And now as the Lord brings his sin to light, everyone will know it too. But, but this is not, and please, I think we need to recognise, this is not just about some kind of public humiliation of Achan. The reality is bringing sin into the light is the way that God is going to use here to bring restoration to his people. Remember what he said back at the end of verse 12? I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so if the people destroy what is devoted to destruction, then they will know God's holy presence with them once more. This is hope, actually. This is good news for the people. It is terrible news for Achan, but it is good news for the rest of the people. If you destroy and remove what is destined for destruction, then I will be with you, is the opposite of verse 12. And so based on God's instruction on what they are to do, Joshua and the people act. They do exactly what he had instructed. And by the end of verse 18, Achan is shown as the guilty one. And can you imagine that process of the people gathered 
working through tribes and then out of the tribes the clans are chosen out of the clans the family is chosen out of the family the men are chosen can you imagine being Achan standing there he was the only one among all these people who knew what he had done and he must have felt the gaze of the Lord burning ever closer with every step until eventually then the Lord uh, Joshua confronts him in verse 19 He's been chosen by, by Yahweh. And then Joshua in verse 19, let's read verses 19 to 21, where we see the truth being revealed. Verse 19 to 21. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honour him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so here we have the whole story. Achan admits his sin before the Lord and before the people. But, but isn't, it, isn't it fascinating to see him explain the process that's involved with his sin? It's all there in verse 21, isn't it? I saw when I saw in the plunder. Then I coveted them. I took them. And they are hidden. I hid them in the ground. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. It all begins with Achan seeing. He sees what the Lord has forbidden. It looks good. This robe, the gold, the silver, they look good. And, and he knows he, he shouldn't want it, but he can sense the urge to have it rise within him. And, and doesn't it remind us of the occasion when sin entered the world for the very first time? As we read it back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3 verse 1, we see the serpent bending Eve's ear with the question, Did God really say? Did, did, he, did he really say you can't eat from that tree? Now, even though Eve responds very clearly with, yes, God did say we should not eat from that tree. The devil, even though she's sure of that at the start of their discussion, the devil is able to tug at the string of her desire and begin to unwind her assurance of God's good truth. And therefore, by the time we get to verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She saw, she saw that it was good, she wanted it, she took. And Achan follows the same devastating path, doesn't he? He sees, he wants, he takes. And we, we may wonder how he could do such a thing. The warning would have been ringing so loud in his ears, surely, from just before the walls fell down. How could he then go in and take this stuff? But before we climb too high and too quickly on our high horses, we must remember something that David Jackman makes very clear. That we cannot point the finger of righteous superiority at Achan if we know the struggles of our own hearts and the various God substitutes to which we buy and worship in our own tents. You see, we too know the reality all too well of occasions, either literal or proverbial, where we have seen, we have wanted, we have taken things that we know God has said not to. 
And so it may be in the case of Achan here that w- that we see a mirror of our own hearts at times. Our own hearts where, where sometimes we see, we covet, we take and we hide. Things that we know we shouldn't, things that God has forbidden us from, for his good purpose. And I think sometimes when we see this in Achan, certainly when we see it in our own lives, this feels like a this feels like a train that's on a set of tracks that can't be that can't be moved, can't deviate from this path. That once I see something and covet it, I will take it, I will hide it. It's as if once we we assume that once we've started that journey of temptation, that that the sin is inevitable. But that is not the case. The glorious freedom that comes through the teaching of Scripture is that there is a different path to be taken. It is not the case that being tempted is the sin. No, we know from Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So there is obviously a different path to be trodden where we know temptation that doesn't end in sin. And we see this so clearly in verse in James 1, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, the issue is not, oh sorry, the issue is allowing the temptation and the desire to lead us to sin. The issue is not the temptation, it's what we do with it and where we let it take us. But we can go another way because we know the other promise, another wonderful promise from Scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, notice that, when you're tempted, we will not live temptation-free lives in this world. That's not, Scripture is real in showing us that temptation will be all around you. You will be tempted, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He will provide a way out when temptation comes. And so this helps us to see that sin is not inevitable when we notice and feel temptation. Goodness, I know it might feel like that. The draw and the allure of that temptation might feel so strong that it feels impossible, like we're like the current is too strong and it's going to drag us down sinful paths. But that's not the case. There is another way. God provides a way out. And therefore, if we end up in the place of sin, it's because we have chosen to be there. Isn't that the, isn't that the challenge of this story from Achan here? And as we see it reflected in our own hearts, that Achan didn't have to take the stuff from Jericho, he chose to. That we don't have to feel pride, we choose to. We, we don't have to hold on to that unforgiveness, we choose to. We don't have to watch that channel or browse that website, we choose to. We don't have to want what our neighbour has, we choose to. And I realise that sometimes the power of temptation can feel unstoppable, but it always is because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. And so the, the truth that we can know from this verse And indeed from all of scripture is that regardless of how powerful the allure of whatever that temptation might be, that that temptation does not hold a greater power over us than God's ability to remove us from it. 
that temptation does not hold a greater power over us than God's ability to remove us from it. And that is good news, isn't it? Because many of us know that the devastating power of sin in our lives. And let's be honest about it. We all struggle with with some kind of temptation. We all struggle with sin. And we struggle with things that some people may know about, but we will certainly struggle with things that no one knows about. In, in some ways, it's a, it's a certainty because we're human. It's part of our experience in living in a fallen world until we reach our eternal home. And so this is, this is something we all struggle with. So, so why do we act? Why do we try to act like we've got it all together? Aiken does that here, doesn't he? He tries to keep his sin a secret. Wasn't that the final step that he mentioned in verse 21, that he has hidden them, that these items are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath? And, and if I can say with all, all the love and grace and humility I can muster, what, what, a, what a pointless exercise it is for us to try to hide our sin from the all-knowing, all-seeing, holy God. We, we, we do try to, don't we? And, and we think we do a pretty good job of it at times. We, we certainly think we do a pretty good job of putting on a good front for others, that we've got things all together, that, we're, that we've got things under control. We may be able to kid those around us, but the, the truth from Aiken's story here is we cannot kid God about our sin. Surely that's one of the key lessons that we can learn from this chapter, that try as we may, God sees. And yes, there's a challenge and yes, there's a conviction in that, absolutely. But there's also an invitation to freedom. God sees, God knows. God has sent his son to die for that sin already. So let's stop pretending before him. Rather, let's bring our struggles and our our temptations to him. Let's see the freeing reality that comes from verses like 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice that. If we claim to be without sin, we don't deceive God. We may be able to deceive others, but we certainly deceive ourselves if we claim to be without sin. And But if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 goes on to say, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us or will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive. And so why do we try so hard to pretend with him? Let's come before him, let's lay our sins before him, those sins that he already knows we're struggling with. And then let let him know let him show his faithfulness to us his justice to us his forgiveness of us so that he can purify us from all unrighteousness and therefore we can live the life of holiness that he's called us to walking in freedom with him not bound by the power of sin but free in the spirit and so we need to we need to stop trying to hide our sins under our tents God sees them there. So so let's bring them out to him so that he can free us from them. 
This is all part of the truth that's been revealed in verses 19 to 21. And, and as Joshua 7 comes to a conclusion, we then see the final verses where the punishment is enacted. And this chapter ends with, with really challenging words to read, really devastating words for Achan and his family. But this is the punishment that God had said was coming. It's the punishment that he tried to warn his people away from. And so let's read verses 24 to 26 of Joshua 7. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place that has been called, therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since, the Valley of Trouble. This is the judgment that God had said would happen to all the devoted things. That's why, as I said, he didn't want his people to become liable to destruction. But, but as we finish with this challenging reality this morning of the judgment being enacted, the punishment being enacted, let's consider one major question that might arise from this whole chapter. And this is in some ways the key question of this chapter. Why was Achan taking a few valuable things for himself? Such a big deal. It may remind some of us of a story that we read in Acts chapter 5 as well. When a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, they bring a gift to the church, but it's not the whole thing. They, they sort of hide a bit of it and they deceive. They seek to deceive uh, God's people. And so God strikes them down. And, and sometimes we read that and wonder, was that really that bad? Why was that such a big deal? Well, Achan's action is here and Ananias and Sapphira's actions in Acts 5. They are such a big deal because sin is a big deal to God. See, I think there's a real risk that we don't grasp this very much. That, that, that somehow in the offer of grace through forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, we've, we've somehow allowed our understanding of the seriousness of sin to shrink. As Dale Ralph Davis has put it, our problem here is sinners that we are. We don't think breaking Yahweh's covenant is all that big a deal. We really cannot understand God's wrath because sin does not bother us much. We, we, may, we may resonate with that statement of Dale Ralph Davis, but the short yet stark reality from Scripture's teaching is that sin leads to death. Sin keeps us from God's presence. Sin leads to hell. All sin, any sin, there is no greater or lesser sins that are more or less tolerable by God. No, sin is sin and sin is spiritually deadly. And therefore, God's wrath is the just response to sin. And when we see God's wrath demonstrated in ways like Joshua 7, yes, yes, we may recoil. We may be shocked. But if we... If we know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, if we know his forgiveness for us, 
And the most, the, the greatest emotion we should feel in these moments is thankfulness. Because this wrath that should be falling on me and you has fallen on Jesus. He has borne it all. He has taken the penalty of sin. And therefore, if as we will sing, and as we sing often, and goodness, I'm not going to sing now, but I feel like it sometimes, that we can say with great gusto, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And therefore, this righteous, just judgment of God of sin doesn't fall on me because it's fallen on his son. And therefore, I can know his righteousness, his forgiveness, his purity, his holiness, his eternal welcome. And oh, isn't this good news? This is the the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the sinless one has taken the penalty of sin upon himself so that the sinful ones can know freedom, forgiveness and eternity with him and a rescue from the punishment that was justly coming their way. This is good news. This is great news. And so the story of Achan, as devastating as it is, should point us to the cross And help us see that sin is serious, yes. That we need to bring our sin before our Father who knows it anyway, yes. And ultimately as we come to the foot of the cross, we see that our sin is being dealt with fully and finally. And so may we know, if if you know the loving, saving grace of Jesus Christ this morning, Oh, would, you, would, would God help us to live in the reality of it and the freedom of it? Oh, and this wonder of, of confession of sin, which leads to complete and utter restoration and a purification from unfaith, unrighteousness. And if you don't know that saving grace of Jesus for yourself yet, oh my God, open our eyes to see the danger we're in, the seriousness of sin, the judgment that is coming. And yet the life that is being offered, the invitation to come, to lay your burdens down, to to give your sin over, knowing that Jesus has paid the price. Oh, would you come to him this morning, turning from your sin and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And because of that, we can know freedom forgiveness and joy everlasting and this is a this is a difficult passage of God's word in many ways as we look at Joshua chapter 7 where we see the holy God and his holy people but this is also a wonderful passage of scripture where God has pointed us to the cross of Christ and as we celebrate communion in a moment or two how right it is that we remind ourselves once again of his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us so that we would know forgiveness from sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ is great news. And so if we know it, if it is our story, will he help us to live in the freedom that he has called us to? Would you pray with me as we, as we finish our time together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your salvation. 
Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to die in our place, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself, standing as our atoning sacrifice so that we would know forgiveness and freedom. And God, for those of us who have claimed you as our Lord and Saviour and responded to your offer of welcome and forgiveness, Lord, would you help us as, as we still wrestle with sin, as we still feel the, the effect of our, of our earthly sinful nature, as we deal with temptation, Lord, would you help us to see that when temptation comes, you have given us a way out. Would you give us the courage and the strength and the boldness to take that way out when you bring it? Help us, Father, to know your, your, your guidance. Help us to know your holiness in our lives as you, by your Spirit, work in our hearts, transforming us more and more into the likeness of your Son, growing in holiness and sanctification until we reach our eternal home with you. Help us, we pray, Father. It is only by your spirit that this is possible. And so we plead for your help, knowing that you are indeed our good God, that if we confess our sin to you, you are faithful and just, you will forgive us. And so would you lead us in that path, we pray. It is all for your, in your name and for your unending glory that we pray.